This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independents. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country, which is actually in Melbourne for those who have asked. And I'm David Spears from Insiders, filling in for Fran, and I'm very pleased to say that I'm here in the studio with PK, also on Wurundjeri land. Soon, we're going to be joined by Peter Harcher. He's the political and international editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And he's over in Bali, in fact, at the G20 Summit. So we're going to talk to him about what's been a very busy week for the Prime Minister and other global leaders uh, with the, the G20, the PM's off to APEC as well. And particularly, we're going to focus in on that meeting, the, the big one with China's President Xi Jinping and what went down there. First, PK, though, we should just touch on a couple of other things, um, starting with the domestic economy, because while the PM's away, the government at home is still wrangling to get the numbers for their IR legislation. We've got some more data this week as well on what's happening with wages. Wages went up. If you just look at these figures, they're pretty impressive. Wages up 1% for uh, um, for the quarter, 3.1% annually. This is for the September quarter. Private sector wages up, uh, in fact, about twice the amount of public sector wages, uh, I'm here to tell you. The retail industry in particular drove the uh, the wage growth. But you've got to look at it in the context of what happened with inflation in that same period. And inflation went up in that period 1.8%. And uh, was it 7.3% annually, which is more than double what wages went up. So you're still seeing real wage decline. Yeah, so it is good that we've seen the increase uh, at the highest level in um, 10 years. But inflation is such an issue that, you know, it's just not keeping up with the cost of living. That's the problem. So sort of half a good story for the yeah. government, if you can have half a good story. A good story that it's it's faster, but it just can't keep up. Look, just staying on that theme of industrial relations, the government's big industrial relations bill is still being considered by a Senate committee. The all-important vote is Senator David Pocock. An interesting development that I think is worth noting. A big town hall meeting happened in Canberra. Uh, David Pocock held it. Uh, Up to 200 people were there. They came and they told him, we need our wages moving. Um, And there was quite a bit of movement and and push around that. Tony Burke, he invited, this is the senator, he invites Tony Burke, the Industrial Relations Minister, to address people. I thought that was a really interesting move by David Pocock. Then I interviewed him, David, and I thought he gave the strongest indication yet that he's leaning towards voting for the bill. So if the government gives you a statutory review period... Are you prepared to look favourably at the single interest stream as well? There's some other details I'm keen to keen to get right as well. One of the things that, that keeps coming up is the threshold for carving out small business. I think it's really important that we get it right. I'll continue good faith negotiations with, with the government over, over the next couple of weeks. And if they give you an extra Senate sitting week, are you prepared to try and pass it by the end of the year? Yeah, I've said I'm committed to continuing to negotiate, work through these these issues that I have. 
So I find this really interesting. Yes, the indications are pretty strong in your chat with him that he's heading towards backing this. We'll get to his outstanding concerns and where I think the, the Tony Burke might still give him a bit of ground. But that that town hall meeting that they held uh, in Canberra is is fascinating. I think a really clever move from both parties involved here. Now, where did they hold it? In Gungahlin, uh, people who don't know the ACT. Let me just tell you what... Um, the Labor vote was in uh, in Gungahlin, in the Gungahlin booth at the, the election earlier this year, after preferences, 63%. Oh. So it's pretty comfortable territory yeah, for Labor. Pretty comfortable. Tony Burke's not taking a huge risk, is my point, in going to Gungahlin to hold a town hall on how to get wages moving, right, um, with with David Pocock by his side. So I think for, for, for Tony Burke, it might be different if he'd gone to perhaps another part of the ACT or another part of Australia where he might have had you know, a big small business audience and a, and a slightly different reception. But I think it was a smart move to go there with David Pocock. Pocock's done uh, a few of these town halls, he was telling you, I think, in the interview since the election. Good way for an independent and a new um, parliamentarian to show the electorate, keep in touch with the electorate, but show the electorate, you know, that he's listening to them and acting on their behalf and all that. He can bring along the cabinet minister, who's the man of the moment uh, right now, and, and they can put their questions to him about these complex IR changes. Uh, and, and Burke is pretty good in that sort of format. So I think, yeah, a smart move for both of them. Now, the single interest stream is the one that Pocock was demanding be yep. taken out of the bill. Doesn't sound like he's demanding that it be taken out of the bill now. It sounds to me like he's happy for some different concessions, David. Yeah, I think the two concessions to watch here that, that he's pushing for, one goes to the number of employees in a small business that makes it exempt from the multi-employer bargaining under the single stream of multi-employer. It's very complex. Um, but at the moment it's 15 and that includes part-timers and he's pushing for that number to be increased. Now, he's not saying what number, but I think there's scope there. And from my conversations with the government, I think there's a willingness to give a little more ground here. The other one, which is a pretty sensible call, I think, from David Pocock, is to have a, a review of these laws once they're in place. Now, presumably that'll be after 12 months uh, or thereabouts. Um, the government hasn't modelled... Um, the impact of these changes on wages, on productivity and all of these things, on the number of industrial disputes, we'll see. It's the sort of thing that you'd, you'd see in practice. So after 12 months, have a review of it. Again, I wouldn't be surprised if the government gives a, a bit on that. But I suspect they will. Yeah, at the bottom line, they want this passed uh, by the end of the year. They don't want it dragging into the new year with a campaign over the summer from the business groups. So you give a bit of ground on those couple of fronts. I think there's a willingness to do that. I think it's looking like it will get done. I reckon it could get done too. And uh, I think David Pocock, I think the Senate will probably back extra sitting time. He wants that as well. Fair enough. Obviously, that's a tricky the Senate decides that. Let's not go. I know there. a lot of people listening to this are going, no, more Parliament. Uh, but maybe, maybe they sit on the Friday of that week and a few late nights that week. I don't know. Do they go into the following week? I don't know. Maybe we're playing a bit of inside baseball for everyone who's um, hooked on that. Let's, let's, let's play the main baseball game here <laughs> and move to the big news of the week. Yep. Anthony Albanese's trip overseas to the East Asia, ASEAN, G20 and APEC summits. Huge, huge international moments for him. His first meeting with the Chinese President Xi Jinping really was the dominant story of, of the week. Mm. First time an Australian leader and the Chinese President have met in nearly six years. Now, let's hear some of what the Prime Minister told reporters before the meeting with Xi. We have had our differences and Australia won't resolve from our interests or our values. But our bilateral relationship is an important one. Both sides have worked to stabilise the relationship based upon mutual respect and mutual benefit. And this is what the Prime Minister said after the meeting. 
I try to act in a mature way in all of our international relations. That's what we need to do. And one of the things that I've said is that we need to uh, not try to uh, score domestic political points through our international relations. I, I deal with things in Australia's national interest. Uh, that's what I've done as Prime Minister and that's what I'll continue to do. Uh, I thought it was a, a, a very uh, constructive discussion. Now, we're recording this podcast as we do on a Thursday morning, so his trip still has a few days to run and, and different elements to it. And, and we'll get into the the meeting with the Chinese president, its implications, the hopes that it provides. But, David, what do you make of Anthony Albanese's reception at the various summits and the other meetings had so far? So, PK, these summits, this summit season, the back-to-back -back summits that you mentioned, these are really speed dating sessions for leaders. They try to maximise, make the most of the opportunity. And it does look like Anthony Albanese's been absolutely doing that. We'll unpack the Xi meeting because that's clearly the big one, the big achievement, uh, the big game changer is, is, is scoring that meeting itself. And we'll get to that with Peter Harcher. But just quickly through some of the other catch-ups uh, and, and bilaterals that he had with the EU, they're progressing um, a free trade agreement next year. Emmanuel Macron, uh, we know Anthony Albanese caught up with him in Paris earlier in the year. They're discussing further defence cooperation after the scrapping of the subs deal with France. So that's going to be interesting. And there's uh, a hope that Macron will visit Australia next year. Uh, Narendra Modi from India, they plan to finalise a closer economic cooperation operation agreement pretty soon and Modi will visit Australia next year for quad talks. Anthony Albanese said he'll go over there for a bilateral in March and then back again later in the year to India for the G20. Rishi Sunak, the new British PM, uh, Anthony Albanese met him and they seem to have a very friendly uh, series of exchanges. They talked obviously about the AUKUS nuclear submarine deal, not giving too much away about where that's heading. And Jocko Widodo, the host, the Indonesian uh, president, um, they discussed critical minerals and getting the two countries to develop a, a battery supply chain together effectively. So it looks like Anthony Albanese's made the most, I'd have to say, of, uh, of, a, of a pretty busy few days. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge opportunity, all of those uh, opportunities to meet with all of these leaders and, and you get quite a bit of bang for your buck out of those well, exactly, uh, meetings. Exactly. I mean, you know, I know there's sometimes cheap criticism of prime ministers on both sides spending too much time on the world stage, but when it comes to these series of meetings that take place towards the end of every year, um, ASEAN, East Asia Summer, G20, APEC, they're banged together back to back. Mm. And I mean, I can't think of a better opportunity. For no, a... I think it's been fantastic yeah. that, that he went. Obviously, he didn't go to, um, the you know, the climate change UN meeting. Some people have criticised that, yeah. but I think he's he's certainly met with all of the big change makers. Yeah, and a shout out too to Jocko Widodo. This G20, you know, there were always big doubts. Will Putin come and will Russia be a big distraction? And what about Xi Jinping? You've got to say, looking at, I know Putin didn't come, Sergei Lavrov came and then left early. But the final communique they've landed on, we might get Peter's thoughts on this as well, I think was about as much as you could expect, more than many were expecting, in terms of condemning uh, Russia's actions mm. in Ukraine. Yes, there's a little line there about some countries disagree yes. or have a different view. and But I do think we're Dodo, Jocko Wadodo's done a pretty good job of, of getting the G20 to the point that they did. Not an easy task. No. Let's bring our guest in. <laughs> Peter Harcher is the political and international editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Welcome to the party room. Morning, Patricia. Glad to be here. Now, with the all-important summits this week, it's been an enormous week for Anthony Albanese on the world stage, which David and I were discussing a little earlier. But what does the meeting between President Xi and the Prime Minister actually 
mean? What's your analysis? You're in Bali. You've been watching all of these events unfold. How significant is this moment for the Australia-China reset or stabilisation, as the government likes to describe it? Well, the moment that Xi Jinping welcomed Anthony Albanese into the room was the formal end of three years of a complete ban on political contact with Australia. So they didn't need to speak a word. The mere fact that he'd crossed the threshold into the room hosted by Xi Jinping at a meeting initiated by Xi Jinping after that three-year freeze is the declaration that China is ending the freeze, uh, not because Australia has made any concession or capitulation, uh, but because the Chinese side has decided that its quest to break Australia's will, remember the list of 14 demands, uh, had failed and might even have been counterproductive. So I saw it as a pretty uh, comprehensive capitulation uh, by the Chinese leader. And that mere act of that meeting, then the rhetoric, of course, as well on top of that, sends a signal right through the Chinese system that uh, it's cool now to re-engage with Australia at every level, companies, government, uh, private citizens, everybody. Peter, we'll come to what that might look like and when we might see some change and so on. But I just want to explore why this meeting has happened. We heard earlier, we, we played the, the, the clip of Anthony Albanese uh, saying that he wants to act in a mature way in international relations, doesn't want to score domestic political points. I thought that was very telling. And Xi Jinping, in his brief remarks on camera at the start of the meeting, picked up on it and, and noted this mature approach and said he put great uh, weight on the opinion of Anthony Albanese in, in that regard. I think it suits both leaders um, to really lay some of the blame for the deep freeze that we've had this bad period in the relationship on Scott Morrison, the suggestion that he was too often scoring political points. That's over and that's why they're now able to meet. Now, look, it, it, it may be true to a degree that there was some immaturity and political point scoring under the Morrison government when it came to the China relationship. But we do need to recognise, don't we, that the, the trade bans, the, 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 the no speakies, the cutting off of communication all predated that. This, this happened in early 2020. And, and those 14 grievances that were issued lay out why China um, you know, was punishing Australia. It wasn't because we were you know, playing politics necessarily uh, with some of the language around China. It didn't help, but was that the reason why we were punished by China and is that the reason why the meeting has now taken place? Uh, no, it's not. I mean, it's that rhetoric, uh, some of the more bellicose rhetoric that we heard from uh, Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison uh, was really um, simply an, an aggravation, really, of the existing, the pre-existing situation, as you say, David. I mean, the first time that the Chinese system really uh, turned against Australia was 2017, when mm. the Turnbull government banned Huawei. Uh, now that, so, you know, it's no coincidence that um, that was the last time, the last time there was a, a formal leader to leader meeting um, was before the Huawei ban. So uh, the system really turned against Australia from that moment on. Uh, so the, the bellicose rhetoric from Morrison and Dutton came very much after that. Uh, the fact of it, though, the fact that that occurred now gives, as you said, both Xi Jinping and also Anthony Albanese 
the excuse to just blame that and say, oh, look, it was just, mm. just the coalition and, <laughs> and their unfriendly rhetoric. Of course, of course, we wouldn't do that. We're way too but sensitive. The, the, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on the, the, the big reasons why Xi has, has had this meeting, because we can't look at it in isolation. He's a few weeks ago consolidated his grip on power in China. He's now leader for life. And in the weeks since then, he's come along to this G20. He's held the first meeting with Biden face-to-face since um, Joe Biden became president, this meeting with Albanese. He's met other world leaders. There's even a little bit of shifting going on on, co- on the COVID zero rules in China in the week since um, you know, Xi was uh, uh, you know, g- given this uh, higher power in China. What's going... Give us the bigger picture of what's going on at the moment in China. Well, the bigger picture would go back, I think, to the, the sea change in China's diplomatic behaviour and that coincided with COVID. Mm. The moment that that virus started to spread from Wuhan and China was on the defensive for allowing, you know, bungling it and allowing it to spread and infecting the world, uh, the Chinese government switched from normal conduct into a very aggressive form of diplomacy. So that was the moment. Uh, it was the best, the old adage, right? The best form of defence is offence. And China went on the offensive, so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, and not just with Australia, but the entire world uh, got the benefit of a, a lot of angry rhetoric, bluster, mm. unfriendly treatment and aggressive tactics from China. Now, that was, of course, um, all to do with Xi Jinping's domestic power, hanging on to his power base, making sure he'd get his next five-year term. Uh, because any... Uh, and this is, this is a critical point about any uh, dictatorship, guys. Um, because dictators at core know that they have a very fragile claim on legitimacy. They cannot tolerate criticism. They cannot tolerate criticism from their own people. And goodness gracious, they can't tolerate it from other countries. And China is the epitome of that. Mm. So uh, Xi Jinping didn't want the criticism over COVID. He deflected it with attack. Um, He's got his new term, as you say, David, and he's got his new five-year term. He's been uh, entrenched with more power than ever. So he can relax about that. Uh, and so now he's that's why he's reconnecting with the US. Uh, and that's that's the big dog, right? I mean, so we are a part of the US alliance structure. Once that switch is thrown, then that allows the switches to be thrown across the US alliance structure generally. Okay, so returning back to Albanese and she's meeting and the what we're waiting now to come out of that, what do we need to see coming out of this meeting and in what time frame, perhaps, Peter Harcher, will we need to see some of it for it to be a success? We know that the two detained Australians were raised by Anthony Albanese. We know that trade was raised. When do we see the shifts? Well, the first thing we'll see will be some more meetings. There'll be ministers, there'll be officials, uh, some of the bilateral meetings and councils that uh, have been shut down in recent years, they'll resume. Uh, and that will be the vehicle by which uh, you'll see some formal and informal progress with trade, as you say, Patricia. So uh, some of that will just be problems that magically disappear. Um, in fact, the big the bans on two of the biggest Australian exports, wheat and thermal coal, already magically disappeared because China discovered it needed those commodities, it needed to warm its people and feed its people more desperately than it needed to punish Australia. So those bans are effectively gone already. Next, you'll see um, the Australian Trade Minister, Don Farrell, talking to his Chinese counterpart about the remaining formal bans. So, for example, you'll see um, uh, probably see Australia withdrawing its complaints to the World Trade Organisation 
uh, or off-ramping, as they call it, over barley and wine. So that stuff will happen gradually. With the cases of the two Australian citizens, I expect you'll see that happen. Um, it will probably take a long time and it won't look like a, a, a decisive outcome, but there will be a softening in their treatment. I mean, the treatment of Chang Lei is just shameful, shackled to a chair, fed only on rice, so she's got all sorts of horrible health problems, um, no contact, even the, the monthly Zoom calls with the consulate were cancelled allegedly because of COVID. So that treatment will improve and probably the cases and punishment and sentences will ease, but it will be gradual. Yeah, well, we can only hope that something happens uh, sooner rather than later. Peter, yesterday uh, on the final day of the G20 summit, I guess there was a bit of a scramble. Things were thrown into a bit of chaos after some missiles um, landed in Poland, across the border in Poland. Uh, two people were killed there as well. I know there were uh, some of the leaders that were attending the G20, um, held G7 meetings and NATO meetings and so on on the sidelines to work out what to do. Um, it, it now looks like this was a result of a defensive air system from Ukraine rather than a Russian missile. But tell us about what happened there and how it possibly sharpened the focus even more so on what's going on in that conflict? Well, the immediate fear naturally was that this was further Russian aggression and uh, that Putin was escalating by taking on a NATO uh, treaty partner. So the moment a, a missile flies into NATO territory, which it did in that Polish farm, um, it potentially engages the entire NATO treaty mechanism in Article 5, which states that an attack on one member is an attack on all. And that then brings would bring the US and Russia into direct conflict. And that obviously is the world war that, um, or the great power conflict with potential uh, nuclear escalation that everybody is desperate to avoid. But, um, you know, Vladimir Putin has been so reckless and wanton and has been prepared to threaten to use nuclear weapons that it didn't seem an impossibility. So that was the natural alarm. That's why they all uh, rushed into a G7 leaders meeting here. Um, and that's why, uh, gratefully, um, they kept it pretty sober, cautious, and said we need more facts before we draw conclusions. And, and thank goodness they did, rather than swing into some immediate mm. retaliation, because, as, as you now say, we know it wasn't the Russians. Mm. Look, this is all coming at the same time as the G20. In the official G20 declaration, leaders said most members strongly condemned the war in Ukraine but added there were other views and different assessments of the situation. The big question, I suppose, is how hard are Russia's traditional allies and trading partners like China and India pushing Russia? And did you think that this went further than you maybe... David was saying earlier when we were talking alone, Peter, that, you know, kind of probably went a bit further than than you'd expect it to, given China was at the table. That's exactly right, Patricia. There was... Um, well, two, two points. Um, there was uh, the concern that China might simply walk out of the room and uh, there would be no declaration to issue. There, there, there could still be a... Um, some sort of statement, but it wouldn't carry the weight of a of a group statement. But the fact that Xi Jinping didn't order that um, gave the group some heart. The, the other thing is that the statement that was released was the product of weeks, I'm told by the negotiators, weeks of very difficult negotiation, believe it or not, to produce uh, even something as apparently straightforward as that. So they had to push hard, but they did get it. Um, so China has now been prepared to openly uh, call 
out the Russian threats of potential nuclear use as being uh, something to be resolutely opposed. And yet, while that's the rhetoric under, under the table, we also know that Xi Jinping is resolutely refusing to abandon uh, his, his really, really his only uh, big and serious global ally, and that's Vladimir Putin. Ally might be overstating it, but certainly partner and... Um, no limits partner. Part, part, partner of convenience, yeah. And, and the biggest thing that China is doing is buying massive quantities of oil and gas, much more than it did before the Ukraine war, which is a direct infusion of cash into Russia's economy and Vladimir Putin's treasury. It's so fascinating, that relationship. And while Xi Jinping may not be you know, about to lecture Putin on the world stage like that, you wonder what goes on privately, if much at all, between the two of them. Uh, any quiet word about how to find an off-ramp uh, from this, um, this war? Look, Peter, you've been pretty busy uh, covering everything there in Bali at the G20, but I assume you did all this before leaving. Your, your big wipeout series in the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age with James Masola has been running each day this week, and it has been fascinating reading to go back and look at what was going on uh, in, well, particularly the dying days of the, uh, of the Morrison government uh, and the tensions between the moderates and the conservatives and so on. Just give us, for those who may not have caught up with the series yet, uh, you know, some of the key insights that we've learned through this series. Well, really, uh, well, I thought it was pretty fascinating, actually, well, you know, because if you think you know a lot of this stuff and you do, but when you go back and dig a bit deeper, you discover explanations, events you didn't know about, undercurrents, and things suddenly make more sense and look yeah. clearer, or in this case, make less sense. And the, the critical one, I suppose, that you've you've touched on, David, really is the uh, the fissure at the heart of the coalition of the Liberal Party between its moderates and its more conservative elements. And that was really uh, settled pretty decisively in favour of the conservatives at the expense of the moderates. And the price that the Liberal Party paid, of course, was the six seats it lost to the Teals, mm. uh, as well as the seats it lost uh, to Labor. But the Teals in particular were traditional uh, heartland Liberal seats that they've now lost and can't. it's pretty hard to imagine they can get re-elected without some of those coming back. And that underlying tension, the fact that the moderates are now angry and rueful, and yet it's exactly the same thing that happened to them when Turnbull, when Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister and the moderates' uh, demands on him were ignored and the Conservatives prevailed. It's a, it's a pattern where the moderates, uh, as one of them said to me, you know, we, we, may, we may be moderate in our views, but we're way too moderate you wrote about the, the push for Josh Frydenberg to have a crack and take over from Scott Morrison. How serious was that push? How strong was the push? And 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 Josh Frydenberg, we know, you know, prided himself on being a loyal deputy, uh, was never going to take on Scott Morrison. But yeah, it, it, tell us about what was going on there. Yeah, so um, in really the last parliamentary sitting session of last year, Josh was getting uh, a number of uh, Liberal Party members were imploring him to have a strike at Morrison and seize the leadership in that uh, wearily familiar pattern that leaders and Australian prime ministers have indulged in in recent years. And uh, Josh's closest supporters, they didn't do a formal count, but they reckoned that he was probably roughly 10 votes short of a majority. Now, that means you'd lose, but you don't expect to win on the first strike. Yeah, it's a two-strike strategy, uh, right? Two-strike strategy. Now, the, the thing it was that... Messy, um, though, it? it would have been very messy, though. Oh, it would have been very messy. would have been very messy. It would have been ugly and bitter 
as these things have always been. Uh, but, you know, we know the result. Once you, once you start undermining a leader, once you come out openly, it's really all over. And the expectation was that if Frydenberg had struck uh, Morrison, Peter Dutton would have emerged at the same time and challenged as well. So Morrison would have been terminal, whatever happened, but it would have been messy. But as you say, David, Josh values his loyalty and ra rather than striking at Morrison, he ran around to see him immediately and told him, mm. <laughs> told him, he's, you know, the party is restless, but I want to work with you to get through these difficulties. And that mm. that was that closed down that option, and then, then they were stuck with Morrison till election day. There is this one line I, I that stuck with me, where you know Peter Dutton didn't believe Josh Frydenberg would challenge because he knew they were having what was it pajama parties at um. <laughs> was it, was Josh Frydenberg did stay at the lodge for a while, but it was a devastating line. Pajama parties, <laughs> was, wasn't it? They were sharing pajamas, I think. Yes, sharing pajamas. Dutton, yeah. Dutton told his colleagues that I never worried about Josh. He never, he was never going to strike against Morrison. They shared pyjamas at the lodge. <laughs> and on that note, what a note to leave you on, uh, but really just worth people reading the pieces, yeah. but really. Um, well until done, we yeah. share pyjamas again, guys, <laughs> it's been great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Peter. Travel safe. Uh, we'll see you back here. See you at the next pyjama party. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. And we've got a question too from, I love a Twitter handle, Jilly Pops 212 And the question is this, why is the political debate about gas prices? Doesn't most of our electricity come from coal right now? It's actually a really good question, David. It is a great question because it's right. Most days it uh, does mostly come from coal. And uh, I think um, Jilly Pops 212 is right that we do need to have a greater focus on what can be done about the coal price and why that uh, coal-fired electricity is, is costing so much. And that comes to what needs to be done between the states and the Commonwealth, because some of these uh, coal-fired generators in Queensland in particular are still state-owned. But the reason we're all focused on gas is because gas, while it may only make up a small part, is the bit that comes in at the mm. end and often sets the price. So if the gas price is through the roof, guess what you're going to be yep. paying for your electricity? It's that price because it's, it comes in at the end when the coal and the renewables can't meet the demand in the market in that five-minute block. Mm. And, and obviously the international price that's been set uh, because of the war in Ukraine has um, meant that you know people are just paying yeah. prices they cannot afford. We still await, can I say, the government's conclusion to how it will intervene says it's very complicated, but it's also yeah, very complicated waiting. It is, but it is really tricky. Um, no doubt the Prime Minister will have been talking about um, energy generally, but Australia's getting under him in this as well with some of the world leaders. Um, Madeleine King, the resources mm. minister, has been in Japan as well. And, and don't forget the influence that Japan, South Korea in particular, are going to have. They've been, I mean, we had the Japanese Prime Minister here only, what, a few weeks back, making this point, don't interrupt our supplies. We really need them as yeah, well. I know. So you've got to balance all these things. Yeah, and she's there trying to calm everyone. It's okay. You know, we're reliable partners. Yeah. Uh, not an easy job. Look, keep sending your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room. Email your questions to The Party Room at abc.net.au. And remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. And of course, there's David's podcast too, which comes out the next day. So you one. just go nuts just listening to as you run around like I do, like a just crazy. All right, that's it from a party room this week. Thanks so much, David, for being here. Thanks, Busy. A pleasure. We'll be back in your feeds. Well, Fran will be uh, hopefully with you, PK, next week. See ya. See ya. You've been listening to an ABC podcast.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.